Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. Hey Amarillo is brought to you by ROI Online. ROI offers content marketing, email marketing, social media marketing, web and mobile design, and more for businesses of all sizes. As your business development partner and marketing agency, they help you tell your story. Learn more at ROIOnline.com. This episode is also sponsored by Excel Energy. The weather is already warming up, which means we're just a few weeks away from the summer heat. The good news is that as of this month in May, Excel Energy electricity prices are going down. And before we get to eight straight, I'll tell you why. Today's guest is Dyron Howell. With his wife, Kelly, Dyron is the founder of Snack Pack for Kids, a backpack program that provides food for children to take home from schools every weekend. Now today, Snack Pack serves more than 10,000 kids in 51 school districts across the state. It works with more than 4,000 volunteers every year just in Amarillo. No doubt you've heard about Snack Pack, but what a lot of people don't know is that while starting this organization and managing its growth over the years, Dyron held down a full-time job in the pharmaceutical industry. And he's lived in Amarillo for less than a decade. So we sat down to talk about his actual career, about escaping the chaos of the Metroplex area for Amarillo, and about the surprising way Snack Pack began. There are things in this episode that Dyron shares that he has not spoken about publicly. Here's Dyron Howell. Dyron Howell, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being here. Glad to be here. So I, I know most people around here know you from your association with Snack Pack for Kids, having started it, running the show over here. But we, uh, I, I want to talk about more than that. So let's start. Can you just tell me how you ended up in the Amarillo area in the first place? Sure. Well, I grew up in Clarendon, so that right. that's so there's that's, some that's the area. there's some connection to the Panhandle. I uh, went to pharmacy school in Weatherford, and then I started with my company back here in Amarillo back in '89, and then started traveling with my company. So lived all over uh, Denver, Dallas, Houston, San Antonio. And that was a pharmaceutical company. Pharmaceutical company. So I worked for Eli Lilly, um, and so they they had me travel all over the the state and, and different parts. And then um, eight years ago, had a chance to come back. And my wife is from here. She went to Amarillo High. So we have a panhandle connection. And um, we were ready to get out of the traffic and the chaos of the Metroplex. So it was a great opportunity to come back to the, the panhandle. Did you go into that world thinking you wanted to be in the sales side of it? Or was there a point where you wanted to do like traditional pharmacy? Uh, well, when I went to pharmacy school, I wanted to go and be a pharmacist. Uh-huh. And so Mike Buds, the pharmacist in Clarendon, was kind of the um, guy that got me into pharmacy school. I always thought I'd just be your small town pharmacist. And we are grateful that a lot of people want to do that. And it makes a huge difference, certainly here in the panhandle. But um, in my last year of pharmacy school, and Eli Lilly comes and is doing interviews. And at the time, Lilly only hired pharmacists. Really? And so I walk in and... Kelly and I had been married about a year, and I said, I don't think I'm going to practice pharmacy. I think I'm going to work for a pharmaceutical company. And she's like, what? You mean we've been living in a trailer house in the middle of Weatherford, Oklahoma, and doing a lot of sacrifices, and then you're not going to go to pharmacy school? But uh, for me, it worked out great because it allowed me to do a whole lot of different uh, opportunities within industry and corporate America that um, I would not have had a chance to do if I had chosen the pharmacy. I still keep my license. I am a registered pharmacist, but... Huge exposure to lots of things in lots of cities and lots of cultures. 
the world of pharmacy itself has changed a ton, you know, probably since you were even getting into oh. it in the 80s. I mean, going from a lot of independent pharmacies to mm-hmm. Walgreens and Walmart and Target. Absolutely. I mean, do, do you feel like you would, had you gone into that traditional pharmacy method, would, would you have continued along that path, do you think? I mean, did you see yourself being a small town pharmacist forever or has that sort of changed? Um, I thought that at the, the I thought changed. that at the time, but after doing what I've done in the corporate America world and all that, I'm glad I chose what I did. You know, I think one of the things that you should do is embrace the opportunity you have and never look back. And mm-hmm. uh, for me, I've fully embraced that opportunity. But that opportunity has allowed me to appreciate um, what I had growing up in Clarendon. It's made me appreciate uh, so many things here in the Texas Panhandle that that I might have taken for granted if I had stayed local and just done that local thing. So when you live in a lot of different cities and you see a lot of different things, uh, you, I think you actually appreciate more what you have. So, so I'm me, glad what I did what I did. Tell me about growing up in Clarendon. What was your perspective on Amarillo? Was was it the place that you went on uh, the weekends? Was was oh, that yeah. the treat? You know, yeah, it was the sixty mile the adventure one way. You know, uh, as they used to say, it was downhill all the way when you went home. Chamberlain Motor Company used to do that. So, uh, yeah, that's where you went to the doctor, where you went to the movie where you bought feed for your animals. I mean, just just a lot of different things. This was the hub, and you grew to appreciate uh, Amarillo. So I learned how to drive. I mean, driver's ed, we came here to learn to okay. drive. You know, so getting on and off a ramp and all those little things that you take for granted living here, you don't have those yeah, opportunities. There are not those ramps. There's no ramps Clarendon. in Clarendon. And, um, but it was great. I mean, I, I think it's one of those, this was the big city. But uh, at the same time, you learned how to work living in Clarendon, and uh, you learned work ethic and... Um, your word was your bond, and when you gave someone your word, that's what that's what that's how it worked. We'd go in and buy a month's worth of groceries, and then we'd get a bill at the end of the month. Hmm. Uh, that's just the nature of how I grew up, and so it was a great opportunity. And I think a lot of the work that I've done in the nonprofit world has helped me appreciate the needs in our outlying communities, and not just be focused locally as well. Right. And so I think it's been advantageous to have grown, having grown up there, and not lose sight of of that opportunity and those needs that exist. Tell me about moving back here after living in different places, living in you know, larger cities, <laughs> and then having the opportunity to come back to this area. You're laughing about it. Why? Oh, I'm laughing because um, when I, I lived at Flower Mound at the time, and I'll never forget this, I was told a lot of my friends were moving to Amarillo, and they're, they're like, you mean the place that we stop at to go to Colorado, or we're going west, or we get gas there, or we spend the night there? So a lot of my Friends in Dallas, that's what they thought of this. And I said, no, we're going back to the place where there's amazing people, uh, great culture, and um, a, a chance to not sit in traffic all day long and spend an hour one way and an hour back. So I spent two hours of my day in my car in traffic. And uh, a lot of times, you know, that's a very stressful experience. And so um, a chance to come back and, and at that point educate people that there's more to this place mm-hmm. than just a place to get gas and a place to fill up your stomach. And this was our move. So I had a chance to finally do a move that I wanted to do versus chasing the corporate golden carrot or the golden title or all that stuff that we sometimes get enamored with. So tell me about the difference between doing what you were doing in the Dallas area and doing what you're doing with, you know, Amarillo as sure. a home base when it's, you know, pharmaceutical sales. Obviously well, I- you've got you, you can't visit, you know, 6 million people within a 30-minute <laughs> drive around here. Yeah, so. well, I was in management in Dallas. So I was leading a team of 14 people and managing about $45 million worth of business. And so I'm in a plane in a hotel every week and managing people. Okay. 
So I wasn't in the in the sales, you know, in, interaction with doctors daily like I was here. Um, so for me, it was a whole different role and a whole different um, opportunity, where you go from leading people to back to what I had originally started doing. Uh, and and I came back and we foc- and I focused on oncology. So traditionally, my company did not have an oncology person uh, in this part of the state, and so that was another unique thing. Is here's a unique opportunity to be in oncology and go back to where uh, my wife was from and where I was from. So there was a lot of differences in what I was doing in Dallas and what I had a chance to do here. So did that keep you primarily then here in Amarillo with the medical center, the oncology center? Or no, are you still I was going I was traveling like crazy. Places? So the last two years, I covered the whole state of New Mexico, El Paso, okay. uh, West Texas. So 80, 90 nights in a hotel um, and on the road and in a hotel or in a plane or whatever. So I was gone as much as I was here. and um, But I knew that. I mean, you can't do those kind of jobs out here and not have the travel. But yet for me, that was an important part of it. The opportunity to be in oncology was huge, and that's not something that everyone gets to do in the world of pharmaceuticals and in the world of healthcare. So it was a great opportunity for me. But, um, you know, like anything, that can get old as well. Yeah. (laughs) Before we we get to that, tell me about, you know, other than the sitting in traffic part, was, was there a large quality of life boost that you got by coming back here, whether it oh, was yeah. connection to family or just getting out of a, a mass of people, talk to me about how those things changed. Yeah, I think that's a, that's an interesting question because what do a lot of times we do? We get in the we get in our car, or we get in a plane or something, and we fly to Dallas mm-hmm. or we fly to San Antonio. And yet, for me, um, the thing that at least I so love here, and you can get that there as well, but um, there's not a rat race here for stuff. Okay. Uh, when you live in Flower Mound or you live in some of these suburbs, it's it's always more, more, more stuff, one upsman, you know, just that kind of chaos, uh, whether it be in education and opportunities for your kids, whatever. So the minute I came here, there was just not that same intensity of chaos. Much more just kind of catch your breath and take a deep breath and enjoy the people. And at the end of the day, the people are the most important thing. It's not the stuff. It's not how big your house is and what kind of car you drive and how many sports your kids do. It's really relationships and people. And uh, this environment here is so much more conducive to that. Why do you think it's different here? Why? I mean, obviously Mm. there are people here that may want to have a nicer car or a nicer house. I mean, we're we're not immune to that, but why as a city? We have that. I mean, let's be real. There's, there are a lot of very successful people here and you have those things and those opportunities exist. But I don't think that's your identity here. I, I think when you live 350 miles from the Metroplex, 280 from Albuquerque, 280 from Oklahoma City, I think you have to establish an identity that's bigger than stuff. And so this, the Panhandle's been founded on people. It's about people. Uh, there's that that heritage that's here that's really about people. And um, I think that comes through loud and clear. Having lived in those cities and then coming back, I can attest to that. And now that I do, we still work with people. We have a franchise in San Antonio with our nonprofit, and there's a whole different mindset there Hmm. than here. And San Antonio is a great place to visit. It's probably the biggest small town in Texas, in my mind, uh, because there's a lot of inherent culture there, Mm -hmm. but it's a big city. And so I think this is just a great place to plug in for people. There's trade-offs everywhere, uh, but I felt like the trade-offs here were much better to be here versus staying in that, that city. What year did you move back here? 
2010. Okay, so, so summer of 2010. So it'll be uh, eight years in July. Okay. So talk to me about the first couple of years here. That was around the time that the snack pack idea sort of started developing. Is that <laughs> is that accurate? It actually started uh, two months after I moved back. Okay. So it was the time. <laughs> well, it was, but I think it's what's fair is we were doing this. I did this in Flower Mound. So we realized there was hunger in Flower Mound, um, and I watched a Nightline story. And I think it's important. A lot of people think, oh, there's this, this crazy guy that moved out here and he started a program, and where did that come from? But um, I watched Nightline, and they did a story about a kid licking his plate in Bowie, Texas. So imagine if you're in the cafeteria at one of your schools, and there's a big commotion, and you go over, and there's a little boy licking his plate in the cafeteria, mm-hmm. and he was doing it because he was hungry. He wasn't doing it because it tasted amazing, and this, I want some more of that. It was, I'm hungry, and I'm going to lick my plate. And kids were making fun of him. And so Nightline does this story about Kayla Brown. I'm sitting on my couch in Flower Mound watching this show, and it brings tears to my eyes. Two reasons. It brought me back to all the friends in Clarendon. And they would steal at Allsup's, a Coke and a candy bar, or they would want me to go back and get seconds, or they were worried about where we were going to eat after a football game on Friday night. So it took me 25 years to realize what hunger looked like in the panhandle Mm -hmm. by watching a show on Nightline. I think the other part of the story that's really important is um, at the time, my marriage was a mess. So my relationship with my wife and my kids was a mess. That was the other thing that um, I was into titles and making money. And this rat race that I described to you all ago, well, that rat race uh, was consuming me personally. And so um, my marriage was chaos. And so I thought, hey, if we start this program, because at the end of that Nightline story, Kayla Brown said two things that really kind of rocked my world. I didn't realize what they, what this really meant. She said, if you don't think this is going on in your community, in other words, kids are hungry on the mm-hmm. weekend, take off your blindfold. And she said, I don't know how I can eat another bite knowing kids are hungry. Well, so I'm sitting there, and it takes me back to Clarendon. And then I go, and you're in Flower Mountain, where everybody's got lots of stuff, so surely there's no hungry kids. But I go and find out there's hungry kids. So I thought, hey, if I start feeding kids in Flower Mountain, Louisville, then my wife will think better of me, my kids will think a lot of me, and I can kind of prove to them, hey, I'm a good guy. Even though y'all don't like me right now, Mm -hmm. and my relationship is a mess, and my marriage is a mess, but if I start feeding kids, maybe y'all will um, think different. That's not the way to do things, by the way. Yeah, so it's it's not an entirely pure for the betterment of humanity. No, I I think when I started this program, there was a very selfish agenda. It was Mm -hmm. about me. And so that mess that I was in with my family was the motivation to, so there was a selfish agenda. But through that, I mean, I I did a lot of counseling. I did a lot of work on me. I went through a lot of counseling. There's a program I did celebrate recovery just to try to understand uh, my own personal journey, Uh, angerness, bitterness, resentment, just a lot of chaos. And so by going through that program and doing that for an entire year, really got a chance to reflect, okay, what's important? So when you walk away from a management job in Dallas and you move back to the panhandle and you go back into sales, um, a lot of that was driven because I realized that all that didn't matter. Right. Okay? And so you were starting over in a lot of different Moving back, oh, absolutely. And so when I came back here, my marriage was in a whole different situation. My relationship was totally different with my kids. So when we started Snack Pack here in my kitchen, it was about kids. It wasn't about let me prove to my wife and my kids but I had grown up a lot, and I think we all have that opportunity in life. I mean, at some point in life, you're going to hum, come to this fork in the road, 
And there's going to be, are you going to take advantage of this life lesson that you have a chance to learn and that knock at the door? Are you going to avoid it? And there's going to continue to be this knock at the door. And then by the time you open it, there's a whole lot of chaos. So I'm grateful my wife gave me a second chance. I'm grateful my kids gave me a second chance. Um, and I'm grateful that I was willing to to work on me. It's not easy to admit you got issues. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, And so, that's not what a lot of people don't realize, that no, that's a part of this story that I think is so important. I didn't roll out of bed and start doing this and kind of stuff. And become a humanitarian. No, 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 no. I was incredibly selfish. I was always about work, helping people, but a lot of times it was about my own agenda. Hmm. I was like, okay, look, hey, I'm helping people. So... And now I actually this doing this podcast. This is this is a very um, difficult thing for me to do because it takes me back to those elements mm-hmm. that you don't ever want to go back to again. I hate spotlight. I hate recognition because it sends you back into this tailspin of chaos, and or it can if you're not grounded. But I think at the same time, I think your listeners need to know that if you're sitting here listening to this and. Your life's a mess, and you're broken, and you're chaotic, and yet there's a knock at the door. Don't be afraid to open it, okay? And yeah, it may be selfish at first, and your mm-hmm. intent may be selfish, but you know what? There's hope for you, too. And so I hope people get out of a snack pack, and my story is not, oh, this guy's feeding kids. There's a broken person that was mm-hmm. behind this that has gotten their life together. Tell me what that looked like at the very beginning. Um, you know, when you get back here and you're you're running this little or starting this little thing from your kitchen, yeah, you know, yeah. it wasn't even snack pack, but but no, the, it the was, very seeds of what yeah. this became. What did that look like? Well, I think the thing is, um, the great thing is, I as I said, I got my act together and figured out what was going on. Well, the thing that just stuck with me was teachers would stop me in the hall and say, "This is a game changer. You're making a huge difference for kids." This was in Louisville, and so I knew when I came here that there must be a need. So I started asking questions. Anybody feeding kids on the weekend? Is there anybody doing anything? Nobody was doing anything. And so September 2nd, 2010, started at Rogers Elementary. I walk in and asked Terry Huseman like three days before, um, I did this little deal in Dallas. You have hungry kids at Rogers. She's like, are you kidding me? Yeah, I've got hungry kids. Well, what if we put this little bag together? Terry didn't think I'd ever show back up, to be honest with you. <laughs> She's like, a lot of people walk, and then what's your deal? There's some guy from Dallas that wants to bring some food for kids. Mm-hmm. So Kelly and I took bags over. And How many bags? Ten. Ten bags. And then it was 20. Then it was 30. And, and you're just out. You're oh, we're doing this in my kitchen. We're going to Sam's, it. Walmart, United, buying stuff, making these bags in my kitchen. Terry became reluctant to call me because the numbers were growing mm-hmm. each week. You know, and she's like, um, I hate to ask you, but I need 20. I don't need 30. And it was week three, and I'll never forget this. As this is a very important deal is because a little boy that we were feeding was having an asthma attack on Friday and refused to leave school until he got his bag of food and the bag for his two siblings. So we were feeding kids at school, and then if there was any siblings, right. wasn't leaving school. It's like, whoa. So for Terry, she called me. She says, I thought I knew what hunger was like on my own campus because I'm identifying kids. I've got a kid that his bag of food meant more to him than him getting a breathing treatment. So we may think we know what hunger's like, and we may think we understand what hunger's like, but unless you've been there, you don't have any idea. And the district got wind of Terry's got some crazy program, and there's some crazy dude over here. And the district calls me and says, can you come talk to some of the PD clusters? We were in clusters at the time. Kevin Phillips says, can you come speak with our clusters? 
And uh, so I talked to the principals. Uh, it's ironic, Dr. West was the principal at Travis at the mm-hmm. time. I talked to all them and told them what we were trying to do in our vision, and they were all like, how do we get this? How do we get this? How do we get this? And I literally, Jason, I got a stack of letters identifying 1,500 kids wow. that they knew needed this. And you knew that you needed a much bigger kitchen. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think it can be one of those where you throw up your hands and say, oh, no. You're like the dog that catches the car. Because you, you're you're still funding it all. Yourself. Oh, this is out of my you're pocket. You're preparing everything, and hey, I did a 30 quick, kids turned into 1,500. I did a quick pencil deal. That was a quarter of a million dollars I had to come up with if I was going to take care of these letters. And yet I'm doing, what, $100, $200 a week out of my pocket. So how do you go from $100, $200 a week to a quarter of a million dollars, and all these letters are sitting on your desk? And so how do you do that? I mean, what did what did you do? <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing you don't do is what I used to do, which is you do it all about yourself and you make it about yourself. Okay. So I, the lessons I learned from being this very selfish individual was you got to make this about the community and you have to take these letters and you have to give these kids a voice and you have to make this personal and you have to make this real and you have to engage people at what they're good at. So whoever was moving, I was telling them, I've got letters, I've got hungry kids, I need help, I need help, I need help. And people started rallying around it in their own way. And so I think the lesson to be learned from 10 kids to 8,000 is when people ask you, what do they need? What do you need? It's what are you good at? Right. If it was money, great. If it was a building, great. If it was volunteering, that's great. Whatever people were good at is what we needed. And so when you engage people at what they're good at, then you take a problem that seems overwhelming and daunting and you make it much bigger. Um, faith is a big part of my life as well. And let's be real, we've all been blessed with gifts. And God has blessed us all with gifts. And I think a lot of times we're reluctant to use those gifts mm-hmm. um, because we're afraid to fail. And in this case, I think in the past I would have been afraid to fail because it would have been me mm-hmm. and it would have reflected on me. In this case, I was going to fail 1,500 kids and a whole lot yeah. of letters. So how could you not go for it? You know, I wasn't going to miss any meals if this failed. But I knew there's 1,500 kids that couldn't learn on Monday morning. And I knew that we needed to rally around our kids and around our community. And so that's what we did. And that's what we're continuing to do. What's the gift? If, if you believe everybody has a gift yeah. that, that they can contribute, yeah. what do you, how do you think you are uniquely equipped in the role that you've played? Like, like what did you yeah. bring to it other than saying, I'm going to start this thing, even though that might have been selfish at the beginning? What has allowed you to... Um, I think the gift of resilience. I had a lot of no's. I had a lot of questioning. I had a lot of doubt. And you just did never stop. I'm a very resilient person. I have been forever. And so you can't be in sales. You can't. There's a lot of things you can't do in this life. Um, So I think back on on those moments where I've always been told no, and I always said that was yes, just in a different way. So it was not not maybe no today, but yes some other day. And so I think the gift of resilience is probably the reason that we're sitting here today because a lot of people told me this wouldn't work or it's not going to work or it's not needed. But yet there was a whole lot of kids that needed me to not give up. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't give up. And then a whole lot of other people are involved as well. I mean, good goodness, you've got 4,000 volunteers. You've got 45 communities out here run by volunteer leaders. So they're just as passionate, just as engaged, just as resilient uh, as I am. And that's a blessing. 
You've recently retired mm-hmm. um, from <laughs> your pharmaceutical job. I did. <laughs> I think most, or maybe not most, but a lot of people don't realize that you were still working and doing all that while Snack Pack was becoming what it is now. Absolutely. Tell me how you managed that. I think it just goes back to finding, engaging people. Um, you know, I say this all the time. Uh, Alan Keister and I talk all the time. We're very good friends, and he runs Heal the City, and we have this mindset that uh, a leader's job is to create more leaders versus followers. And so if I had been in the follower-creating business, then I couldn't have done my real job. I managed a $13 million business covering uh, all of New Mexico, West Texas, lots of accounts, lots of oncology centers. You can't travel 80 days a year and manage $13 million worth of business if you're not creating leaders. So my mindset from the beginning was to engage people and engage leaders and, and allow people to engage in this journey and allow them to make it personal for themselves. And so um, that's how I did it. And I was okay with not, if people were good at something, go for it. Mm-hmm. Do this. If you want to raise money for us, man, go raise some money for us. If you want to help us create our website, if you want to go and deliver these every week, rain, sleet, snow, shine, we need that. And so everybody in our organization is a platinum donor, whether it be your time, your gift, your money. It doesn't matter. We only have one kind of donor, and that's a platinum donor. And everybody is that person. A lot of organizations, if somebody, let's say somebody in the business world, you know, has this idea, starts this nonprofit, Uh it begins to reach thousands of kids and have Uh thousands of volunteers. Sure. A, A natural idea is to just say, all right. I'm going to step away from my corporate job and I'm going to run this nonprofit. Mm-hmm. I, it, I need to devote full time to this. Um, and you didn't, you didn't make that decision. So, uh-uh. so tell me why. Uh, well, the simple thing is I couldn't afford to do that. <laughs> I'm not independently wealthy. <laughs> you, uh, you didn't want to, you know, take a salary and no. you know, part of the, no. the income or the, the donations coming here to no. dedicate that to staff. No. I, I think I think the other thing is um, we have a unique partnership with Baptist Community Services. So uh, if you take Charity Water, it's an amazing organization mm-hmm. in New York. So one of the things a lot of people don't know is I read and study a lot about nonprofits all across the country, and I look at the best elements of every nonprofit, just as I did in the business world. I wanted to know what the best salespeople did and how do they work with customers. So I have researched, 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 and read and done a lot of seminars online, understanding the nonprofit world because I had no background. Well, Charity Water has a unique model where they went and found donors to support the business model, mm-hmm. and then every donor is engaged in the drilling of wells. So my vision was how do we go create a partnership where someone can be the business piece, right. the overhead, the the rent. So all of that is covered by exactly. something separate yes. from what's so donated. So that every person in this organization was focused on one thing, the kids. And I think um, it, is, it is the hallmark of what we're about. It's the kids. It's the kids. It's the kids. So if all of a sudden I start taking a salary or I start doing this, then I can get distracted. So we approached Baptist Community Services, and they said, sure. We had a partnership with them. They had sponsored a school, and then I just ran this idea by them, and they said, this fits with what we want to do, and we want to be engaged in that. Well, what's awesome about Baptist Community Services, all 45 communities in the Panhandle and South Plains have no overhead. So we do all their money. We do all their finances. We have two staff that run this entire organization, paid. Right. 
And so it's a it's a it's an amazing gift that Baptist Community Services said, let's think out of the box as well as an organization and how can we accelerate the impact of something not just here in Amarillo but across the panhandle. And so somebody somebody gives a hundred dollars to snack pack, makes that donation. Yeah. A hundred dollars is going toward feeding kids. It's, it's gonna not buy like brand ninety dollars plus ten dollars for salary or no. to turn the and, lights and, on or and there's nothing wrong with that model but our model is 100 percent of what you invest goes back to the kids and in this case it buys nothing but brand new brand name food mm-hmm. and we're very committed to brand name and brand new because we think dignity and respect are priceless and what you give a kid will tell that kid what how we value them we can't tell kids hey you're our future and we believe in you and then if I give them something that's left over, what does that tell them? Mm-hmm. Be glad you got something. What I want to do is I want to give you the best, and you know what you're going to do? They're going to come back and they're going to give us our best. In the classroom, in our community, as they volunteer, where they work. And so we all in our lives need someone to just come give us a help, pick us up, encourage us, support us. I sure didn't get where I am without a lot of people encouraging me. I'm sure you're the same way. Mm-hmm. So... What little piece we can do is we can give dignity and respect with what we do with that $100. And so we want our donors to feel proud about what we're investing in as well. So before we, we close this, this section, yeah. I, I want to let you compare what Snack Pack looked like in its first couple of years to what it is right now. Yeah. Not even necessarily in the number of kids served, because I know mm-hmm. you've gone from those 30 kids at an elementary school mm-hmm. to all over the panhandle to things are being replicated in San Antonio and other places like that. But tell me like how it has changed in terms of the food you're providing, how you're getting that food, um, yeah. you know, how you're managing what has become a really large nonprofit organization. Yeah. Um, it's changed. Plus now that you're retired <laughs> and you can, you know, devote yourself full time to it. Well, I've retired, but I am going to start a new job. So oh, right? okay, yeah. well, I so, take that back. that's a whole, but, but here's the thing. I think, um, in the world of business, you you move as the as the ball moves. You have to be willing to move, and you have to be nimble and and move. And so, our organization should look different today than it did when I was doing this in my kitchen. I mean, we feed eight thousand kids. You're a one point two million dollar business. So if you're not moving in the world of business, or if you're not moving in the world of nonprofit, then that snowball is going to roll over you. Um, so we do things totally different. We have a buying cooperative. We we now sit down and negotiate with Kellogg's and. Kraft and Heinz and Fairlife and all these companies, we negotiate directly with manufacturers. When we first started, we didn't have a buying cooperative. We'll run $3 million through our buying cooperative. We're making our own products. So I think we're doing no different than any good business owner does every day. They look at their business, they play to their strengths, they do what they're good at, and then those places that they need to improve or that they do better or that they can grow, that's what we've done. And um, I would say this is a business, and we've managed it like a business. Tell me about the attention that you've gotten from outside this region with the model. Beyond San Antonio, I mean, there are yeah. other places that are saying, okay, this thing works. Yeah. How can we do what Snack Pack is yeah, doing this, in Amarillo? The, the model has gone to Spokane. I think one of the things, Spokane, Washington is a great example, that they learned our elementary model, and then they flew back down here and took our high school model back called Snack Shack. Uh, But I think um, the other part that we're doing now versus what we used to do is we're training others. So everything we have is copyrighted. Everything we have is trademarked. So we're in the position and we train others. We have people that come here and we train teams and we train groups to take 
our elements back to their city. I don't care if you call it our brand or not. That's really not what this is about. Uh, but we have some elements that I think uh, are beneficial for them to to accelerate their success. Uh, Austin was here in January. They're looking to take some models that we have and start this uh, in the fall in Austin. Lubbock was here uh, last fall. They're looking to take our elements and expand what they do in Lubbock. So I think our mistakes and our learnings are, are allowing others to grow. And you, you know, you started with a career in sales and Mm -hmm. then management, but what Snack Pack is, is a lot more entrepreneurial, Mm -hmm. Uh, whether it's in the nonprofit side or not. Do Mm -hmm. you, do you feel that that that's accurate, that you're doing something as an entrepreneur at this point? No doubt about it. I mean, if, let's be real, if we're making money, this is a pretty good success story. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're not, but we're making a difference in a lot of lives, which you can't put a price on. Uh, But I think, I think you should have the entrepreneurial spirit regardless of what your business is. The reason we have an entrepreneurial spirit, when you are, Jason, when you're three months into this and you get letters from principals describing 1,500 kids and you need to come up with a quarter of a million dollars so kids are no longer hungry, you can't go about it the same old way and sustain that. Mm-hmm. you got to think different. And so that was also a piece of this puzzle is I didn't want to look at this later and say, wow, why did we not apply innovative, unique opportunities that, that kids needed to make a difference. And so it, it fits nicely with that, but it also fits with the fact I'm willing to take risk and not worried about mm-hmm. failing because we were going to fail kids, not me, if we didn't take care of this. How big of a role does Amarillo play in that story? Oh. In, in the growth, the development, the funding, the resources? I mean, um, it's a total game changer. I mean... What we do, it's it, you know why I know that is because when we have people that come here from San Antonio, Austin, Lubbock, Spokane, Washington, all over and they visit, they are blown away with the engagement of our community. When we're visiting campuses, so we go and we'll meet with school principals or we're meeting with students as they're running this business or they're here on a packing night and they see 300 people from all parts of our city, all backgrounds, all demographics, all economic situations are all here for one thing. And they're like, wow, Amarillo is in your building, not a neighborhood of Amarillo or a section of Amarillo, but they see Amarillo on display every other Tuesday night. And so, yes, we're not where we are without that. 45 communities here in the Panhandle are not where they are without that. Um, But uh, we have a unique quality with the people here. We were talking early on, why did I move back and what's going on? It's the people. The outsiders that come here will tell you that. It's the people. We've been successful because of Amarillo. Content marketing, email marketing, social media marketing, branding, web and mobile design. If you have a small business or if you have a large business, you probably hear these terms all the time and they're in the context of stuff you need to be doing. But if you're like most business owners, you just really don't have the time or the manpower or the expertise to focus on these things. But you need to because marketing is crucial in today's business climate. The thing is, it can be super overwhelming if you don't know much about it. That's why you should join forces with ROI Online. ROI believes your marketing should make you money. Their team of experts partner with you to shape your company's marketing and culture. But ROI is more than a marketing agency. Think of them as your business development partner. They help tell your story so you connect with customers and get ahead of your competition. So become a partner with ROI, create a plan, and grow your business. To learn more about how ROI Online can position your business for the future, 
Visit ROIonline.com or follow them on Instagram and Facebook. ROI Online, leading the modern marketing movement. Okay, so let's talk about electricity. I, I typically don't even think about Excel Energy during the day because I sit at my computer, I have the lights turned on, and as long as those things work, I'm happy. The only time I think about our electric company is when I get a reminder email that tells me my electricity bill has automatically drafted. Super easy. But as we approach the heat of the late spring and the early summer, the good folks at Excel tell me that their rates are going down thanks to a big drop in the cost of natural gas. That's what fuels their power plants and the efficiencies of their new and upgraded power lines. So that means my bill will be lower than usual. Typical residential customers like me can expect a 6% drop in costs starting this month which means your June bill might be about $7 less than your May bill, and that's based on 1,000 kilowatt hours of usage. Now, at my house, with two teenagers at home, we actually use more than that, so more savings. Local businesses will see an overall monthly decrease in their bill of anywhere from 8 to 14%. And for the average business, that's over $100 in savings each month, maybe 9%. That's good timing, especially if, like most of us, you just now turned on the air conditioner. So when the next heat wave hits, I'll be thankful. Learn more about your electric company at ExcelEnergy.com and on Facebook at Excel Energy Texas. Okay, we're back with Dyron Howell of Snack Pack for Kids. Dyron, this is the part of the show I call Eight Straight. Mm-hmm. I'm going to ask you eight straight questions. Your job as my guest is to answer those in whatever degree of detail you want to. <laughs> um and I know how uh, how important it is to be transparent about things, you know, and, and yeah. telling your story. So maybe yeah. maybe you've got some really good deep answers to these questions. Oh, too. I doubt that, but I can make up some if we right. need to. <laughs> okay, so the first one I've not asked this of any of my guests. Okay, um, but your organization is called Snack Pack for Kids. Uh-huh. I wanted you to identify for listeners what is your favorite snack. Oh, that's easy. It's the Snack Pack beef stick that we make. So okay. we make our own SP4K beef stick. Right. Uh, Clinton Sons, Clinton Sons makes, makes it. That. And, and it's made with brisket and chuck roast. So I, I eat them all the time. I love them. They're great. Uh, your listeners can can buy one at Packersack, Toot and Totem, Allsup's. And uh, it's an innovative idea. We were talking about innovation uh, before the break. Our kids love protein. Mm-hmm. They don't have access to protein. And so we developed our own beef stick. And it puts a half a million dollars a year back in our local economy. So most people don't realize that as a nonprofit, we're, we are reinvesting a half a million dollars back in our economy because it's made local and it stays yeah, local. Yeah, so you're not buying beef jerky from some big national company. Uh, we I mean, we did, and we were sending all that money out of here. But mm-hmm. now then, so my favorite snack is having a local impact on our economy. All right. And great. it tastes great. <laughs> Other than your own organization, What's your favorite local nonprofit? Oh, I'm going to have to give three here. <laughs> okay. I didn't even know if you would give any because oh. I, I know there's a lot of relationships. There. Oh, no. I'll, I'll give three. One, Heal the City. Okay. Uh, it's an amazing organization. I'm on the board there uh, and worked with Alan Keister from the beginning, uh, from the very inception of this whole idea. And I think one of the things that's so important is we can take our health for granted. Mm-hmm. And yet, if you have your health back, then you can provide for your family. So I say health is wealth. And so what better opportunity than to serve our community that may not have access to health care? Uh, StoryBridge is right here in my warehouse. So now that our kids can learn and are they're, they're, they have nutrition, they can mm-hmm. learn and they can read. So Chandra Perkins has started a great program called StoryBridge. Every kid walks out the door with a book, and they have these book fairs at their school. They get a library of their own. And so we believe in what StoryBridge is doing. And then uh, the bridge and April and her team over there is amazing. Okay. 
Innovative program. I love the bridge and what they do for kids. For for listeners who don't know, what does the bridge do? Uh, so basically, kids that are unfortunately abused from a, a sexual abuse perspective, they have created a model that is now all across our state where kids can go to one place, safely tell their story, and everyone gathers the information, but it's done in a dignified and respectful manner. And what I love about April and her team is they are all about kids. Uh, and recently, they've taken some of their centers out of Amarillo. We were talking earlier. So if this investigation needs to be done in a safe place in other communities, they have these resources outside of Amarillo. Instead so, of multiple depositions or... Absolutely. Right. Kids deserve to be treated with dignity and respect regardless. And so they have found a way to do a very unfortunate thing that has happened in a very dignified way. And so I uh, love their organization and what they're about. Now, this is a question that I do ask of, of every guest. Sure. What does this area have too much of? <laughs> too much wind. Okay. That's a fairly <laughs> common answer to that question. But we've also figured out how to turn that into money. Uh-huh. <laughs> if you go to Wilderada or you, you grow anywhere out here. So, I mean, hey, we figured out how to harness something that we probably have too much of. <laughs> okay. What does the area not have enough of? Oh, my goodness. That is a loaded question. I'm going to say we don't have enough water. <laughs> it is the it will be the element that that is going to be a game changer in the next 50 years. Mm-hmm. And I think it's something that we can easily take for granted. Uh, but it is a critical element to the growth and development of the Texas Panhandle. What is your favorite local restaurant? Uh El Manitel or Manit I'm not sure how to say Manon, that. Manantial. Thank you. I'll let you do I'll, all the uh, I'll ask my Spanish-speaking friends. I love that place, and it's a little hidden gym, and you can have some of the best tacos in Amarillo there. Uh, the service is awesome. The people are great, and I would encourage everyone to get out of their neighborhood and go eat in this city. Uh, you have an international um, experience in this city, mm-hmm. so so be be a risk-taker and go try some amazing Just places. Travel like two or three miles on Amarillo Boulevard, and you'll have you every can taste ha- in the world. You can, and I've traveled... And I've been around a lot of places in this world, but I'm so grateful that we have that opportunity here in Amarillo. You, you've talked about, um, you know, talking to your friends back in the Metroplex area uh, mm-hmm. about Amarillo, but how do you describe Amarillo to people who don't live here? When you're introducing your organization, Absolutely. when you're introducing the place? Well, after they get past the restaurant and the cars buried on the west side of town, mm-hmm. I remind them that there's a lot of amazing people. And, and I think what's awesome is I tell them the people side of it with a lot of the innovative work that happens here. Um, and a lot of things that we do in this city, and I can just speak from the nonprofit world, you take the bridge, that model is now across the state of Texas. You take 24 Hours in the Canyon Survivorship Center. We're one of the few cities in all of Texas and, and around this and within a five-state region that has a standalone survivorship center for cancer patients. And so when you start talking about innovation, heal the city, and then people are like, Wow, those are awesome. I said, yeah, you got to have great people to bring these innovative entrepreneurial ideas uh, and make them successful and sustainable. And so I use stories to let people know about how great the people are here. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you can tell that same thing in the business world, but in the world of nonprofit, there's an immense amount of entrepreneurship uh, and innovation. When was the last time you ate at the Big Texan? Uh, Four years ago when we had our team from Spokane. (laughs) Okay, so you had the outsiders, and that I was, had the that outsiders. Took I took them there. They all bought the souvenirs, uh, and they still uh, send me pictures every year wearing these souvenirs or drinking coffee out of the biggest coffee mug or the mm-hmm. biggest hat. So uh, it's a great conversation piece, uh, and obviously an amazing business. And uh, once again, business leaders that have done an amazing job to 
bring a lot of different people to stop and see what Amarillo may have to offer. Okay. And then you mentioned the Cadillacs west of town. When was the last time you went to Cadillac Ranch? Oh, I can't even remember, but I see them every day when I drive home to Bushland. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I see so many people stop there. There's always cars there. There's Regardless always of the weather cars there, or... and there's always cars at the Big Texan, and I'm like, how do we get people to stop in between, mm-hmm. and what do we got to do to attract people in between, and so I think about that every day when I drive by that Cadillac Ranch, because it can be blowing 50 and snowing, and there's people out there. Yep. Well, that, that concludes our eight straight questions. Uh-huh. Uh, I like to end every episode, Dyron, by just asking my guests to endorse something related to the area, so oh, what sure. is something that you want Amarillo people to know about, to experience, to be aware of? Well, I think I want people in Amarillo to not take for granted the agriculture community here. It is easy to take, especially living in Amarillo, uh, agriculture and the people that put food on our table every day. Um, we are blessed with, with so many people that are willing to work seven days a week, 24-7, to make sure that we have something to eat. Uh, it's an incredible economic uh, impact uh, in our communities and in the panhandle. But um, if I think about Snack Pack for Kids, we didn't give kids a lot of protein when we started. Mm-hmm. 70% of the protein we now give kids and we give over 50 grams of protein every weekend is because our agriculture community rallied behind a deficit and said, we want to do something for kids. And so I think it's so easy to get in your car and drive from here to Dallas, Albuquerque, Oklahoma city, across the panhandle and take for granted all these farms and ranches that you see uh, and what they do day in and day out. And they really are very philanthropic, generous people. And so it's, it's a, heart of the panhandle that that can easily be taken for granted. Dyron Howell, thank you so much for being on Hey Amarillo. I appreciate it. Thank you. And that concludes this episode. I want to say thanks to ROI and Excel for sponsoring the show. Uh, especially want to say thanks to Dyron Howell for his transparency in this episode, for sitting down to talk about the founding of Snack Pack, the things he was going through. Uh, the, that's not a story that he has shared very often, and I, I truly do appreciate it. You can learn more about Snack Pack at sp4k.org. There's a link to volunteer if you want to get involved. Learn more about this show by going to heyamarillo.com. Follow us at heyamarillo on Twitter. Uh, Look us up on Facebook. Follow us on Instagram at Podcast. If you don't mind, if you enjoy the show, leave a review. If you don't enjoy the show, go ahead and leave a review. It can help me be better. But I appreciate it. Thank you for listening. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.